This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, you're Sheila Warren. Such a great time as my opening salvo here at Consensus 2022, moderating a panel on open money with Natalia Tucker, Diana Biggs, and Patrick Merck. We got into so many deep topics here. We got a bit dystopian, a little bit dark, uh, but I think we ended on a hopeful note. And I think our themes were, how do we think about corporate control of digital money? How do we guard against this reality and recognize that it might have some pros, but has a bunch of challenges and cons as well? How do we ensure that we're building a more inclusive system that really centers people, particularly those who've been historically excluded from legacy systems within our environments? And then of course, how do we think about sustainability and include the planet, not as an afterthought, but as something that is part and parcel of everything that we do and the way we engage within this community. So I hope you enjoy. I certainly had a blast and enjoy the session. Thank you for that, and hello everyone. We are honored to be kicking off this section of the programming. I'm Sheila Warren, I'm the CEO of the Crypto Council for Innovation, and I'm joined by this incredible panel to my immediate right, Natalia Tucker, co-founder and COO of Knox Networks, Patrick Merck, president and CLO of Transparent Financial Systems, and Diana Biggs, CSO, Chief Strategy Officer of DeFi Technologies. And we're here to talk about open money. I wanted to start off this panel just by framing that question. We take for granted, I think, in this ecosystem, we are all, many of us, dedicated to open, permissionless, decentralized networks. But the permissionless and decentralized, we have at least structured fights about what that means. But we tend to gloss a bit over the openness. And I think that the idea that we're redesigning a system to be more open is predicated on the assumption that the current system is closed. So I thought we'd start off by just going down the line and, and my asking you, what does openness mean to you? What does open money mean to you? And so part of that question is, what is closed now that should be more open or needs to be more open? And then how do we know it when we see it? How will we know when money is open? So Natalia, over to you first. And just really excited to be here today. It's so nice to see everyone in the audience. So I think to Sheila's point, you start with this idea of what does closed mean? So when we think about legacy systems today, you know, we notice a few different things. One is back-end technology and back-end office, back-end office operations are extremely siloed. There's lots of different things all strung together. It makes it then very hard to innovate and stay up with the speed of innovation and the scale that the rest of the industry is working at. The second is sort of this idea of high costs, costs of compliance and dealing with fraud or even costs of cross-border transactions. And then the third thing around working with these institutions is poor data quality, transaction analytics sometimes also leads to bad and poor decision-making. So when I personally think about openness, I think there's sort of three pillars that I have as sort of my mantra. One is scalability, interoperability, and privacy. And now on scalability, I mean, what type of technology actually allows you to think about scalability in terms of speed, but also scalability across different regulatory and financial regimes? So thinking even, you know, we're at a crypto conference, but are blockchain and crypto even the right answer for some of the things that we're trying to achieve? I think, secondly, we have interoperability. So thinking about 
A, how do we define that? People throw this word around a lot, but a lot of people define it differently. I would say two things that come to mind for me are interoperability with different financial standards. So thinking about NACHA, ISO 222 is something that's come up again and again. And also interoperability with payments networks. So a lot of big institutions today, they're thinking about, well, if I adopt something today, is it going to have to be changed in the next five to 10 years? And the idea here is what type of platform allows legacy systems to plug in immediately today, but still keeps them relevant in the future? Interoperability with traditional reserve systems and also other Web3 digital assets. And then the last is obviously privacy. Privacy comes in many different shapes and sizes. I think I think of two things, digital kind of cash, and then this idea of digital identity. So we can all agree today we have an ecology of money, right? We have cash, we have different crypto assets, we even have like our PayPal's Venmos, and there will always continue to be an ecology of money. And so for cash, what is the evolution of cash? What is the purpose of having something that maybe still preserves anonymity of people. And with that, we talk about digital identity. So is there you know, a system that we can design where humans and consumers get to own their own identity in the system? And if they choose to share that, it's done so in some sort of privacy encrypted way, you know, maybe through verifiable credentials or something else. And within this digital identity system, can we empower people to continue to think about how they own their data how they sh- and how they share that data. Yeah, that's really a great framework to start with. And I think when we talk about openness and like, what does that mean? It's, it's a great question because what we're really doing there is we're putting the ends first, right? Not the means. And I think that's really important. It gets lost a lot, especially in conferences like this. People talk about all these different things, decentralization this and whatever. And they're talking about the means to an end, but they're not talking about the ends. Like, why are we actually building this stuff? What are we here for in the first place? I think when we start talking about this openness concept, it gets at that, like, what are we doing here before we just start talking about, like, the tools for doing it? And so openness, I I think that's a great framework for understanding it. Obviously, that's a social question, which makes it a policy question. Like, what is the kind of openness that we want? Because there's the corollary, which is, What is the kind of openness that we don't want or what do we want to protect against? Twitter is a great example of that. Twitter was open and then we realized, well, that might be too open, right? So like, you know, so who gets to decide like the parameters of openness on Twitter? It's the same question I think that we're exploring now. Who gets to determine the parameters of openness around money and finance? Again, it's a political question. It's a social question. The thing that's most interesting about the moment we're in right now is that for a long time, the regulations around finance, which have addressed these political questions, these social questions, have been dictated by the limits of technology. We settle in three days because that's what the technology supported. We KYC people, we know your customer, do identity check. A certain way we establish our identities in certain spheres, a certain way based on technological limitations that existed at the time that a lot of those regulations and laws were created. Now we're at a time where the technology is at a point where we can do almost anything around those spaces. And so instead of the choices, the regulations of social policy choices being dictated by the limits of technology, now we have this expansive technology that allows us to make any choice we want 
we can settle immediately. We could say that we don't want to because it's not desirable for whatever reason. We could have a system of payments and money that's completely open where everybody has access to the Federal Reserve, right? And you can just live off the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And we realize there are downsides to some of those things too. In a purely open system, you know, there's not going to be a lot of competition because one player will eventually dominate the whole thing. There are many different types of things. We might have illicit actors abusing the system if it's truly fully open. So now we can make policy choices based on what we actually want as a society rather than just have them dictated to us by the limitations of technology. So it's an interesting question. And as a good lawyer, I didn't answer your question one bit. Just to be clear, I, I, I acknowledge, I did not answer that question at all. But I hopefully established a framework by which we can all answer it together. Very much so. And I just, I'll just plug in quickly to just say, I, I do think our policy very much reflected the realities of what was practically possible, both technically and from kind of a legal perspective. And the idea is that we've created in our policies exclusion-first systems. So when you think about who has access to even make, let's take the, you know, the, the use case that draws all the drama, investment options and make investment decisions, you have to, the United States, be pre-wealthy. You have to have a certain level of wealth that you can demonstrate in a certain way, by the way. It's not even like you could just have wealth as defined by any logical person. It's particularly prescribed kind of wealth before you can make certain kinds of decisions and you're permitted to do that. So we've structured some of the exclusionary first, exclusion first principles in our regulation in ways that have been a response in some ways to the closedness of legacy systems. But I just wanted to land that point because you mentioned policy and I agree completely that this is a very much a culture and policy question that should be driven by certain constraints, but those constraints no longer exist in many parts of the ecosystem. But Diana, over to you to get your thoughts on this question. Yeah, so just building off what Patrick said, essentially today we have two types of money. We have, uh, and it's in a hierarchy, state money issued by the government, and then bank money, which uh, you could argue is some of that is actually issued out of thin air. Um, but it's based on the, the lending needs and the sort of closed system that, that banks operate in. You have another layer on top of that of corporate money, but that's essentially building into the bank money as well. And what's really fascinating with the advent of Bitcoin, arguably, is that for the first time you had a money that's actually operating outside of both of those systems. And this technology then allows us to, to look beyond that existing paradigm that we're operating within which, uh, Sheila, as you mentioned, is quite closed. We've always had an opt-out of that to some extent. And if we look at marginalized populations, which I think is the most interesting when we're thinking about open money and who do we really need these systems to work for first, is that we've had cash. Cash is non-judgmental. Cash is data-free. Cash is accessible to, to everyone. But as we move into what everybody seems to think is an inevitable future where we have digital money, what then happens to the types of communities and, say, political dissidents, activists, those marginalized communities that depended on cash. And so I think when we're looking at how do we build open money, an actual digital cash that has those inherent qualities still is, is incredibly important. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. As businesses prepare for the token economy, EY is committed to building a better working world and connecting global business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. To learn more about the EY blockchain portfolio of products and services, visit blockchain.ey.com. 
That's blockchain.ey.com. You know, I think it's really funny because there's this kind of, it's a bit meme, but the idea is if we were to design anything today, we would never design physical cash. That would just never happen. Nobody would ever permit it. It'd be too scary and threatening and whatnot. But now that you have actual physical cash, I think it is, it is impossible in my mind to imagine that that ever goes away. But of course, it's predicated on the willingness, and I wouldn't even say desire, it's actually the willingness of central banks to continue to mint, to print, you know, and to mint physical cash. And so I, I, do, I do see a world in which all these different forms of money remain available. You do have the sort of physical M1, like in your hands. You do have central bank-issued digital fiat. You do have stable coins, which are pegged to something extrinsic, in some cases fiat, in some cases other things that have extrinsic kind of volatility. And then you have crypto, what I call pure crypto, which has its own intrinsic value determined largely by the market, the utility, et cetera. But I'm curious, um, and I want to frame this in the context of Imra Probability, because I think you made some really, really interesting observations to tell you that we're not talking, or you're not talking anyway, about supplanting completely and you know, having a revolution where we like get rid of everything that exists. You're saying we need to be able to have, I think what you're talking about is about agency and choice. As consumers at the retail level, meaning people who just engage in transactions every day, I think we deserve the opportunity to, to explore what are these different technologies, these different opportunities, these different options allowing us, and we'll choose. If I feel like physical cash is better for me because it's easier because I'm in whatever world I'm in, I should be able to make that choice. If I feel like I have, for some reason, a CBDC that's designed in a certain way is useful for me, I personally am skeptical, but you know, if that comes, I might choose to use that instead. Or I may say crypto is what works for me because I have different needs. And so the idea is that none of these categories, apart from physical cash, are monolithic. They all have design choices that go into them, and the design is going to differentiate in the areas of privacy, scalability, and operability. So I'd love to just get what is your vision of what you think is, what you think should happen, and what you think is actually going to happen when it comes to, A, the availability of these different options, and B, the ability for them to fluidly interact. And how does that play into this concept of openness? So there is, and, and Diana, it's a great point about like the, the cashless future. And it's always like so rosy. It's like, it's going to be amazing, right? Like we just tap and buy things. It's going to be awesome, right? And it's like what's not said is that what's a public utility now is being co-opted by corporations because cash is a public utility. All the other forms of money that are out there, and there are a proliferation of monies, and I don't just mean different currencies, but like, Venmo versus cash versus, you know, square cash versus, you know, all these different things, money pack and all these different things. You have a public utility in cash, which is under attack right now. And it's being replaced by systems and forms of money, which are corporate. And I'm not like anti-corporate. I'm a good old fashioned capitalist. Uh, you know, that's fine. Good. Make a profit. That's great. But it's a different type of thing. It's a different beast entirely. And I'm not sure we should be comfortable just saying that we should eliminate this public utility from our lives or celebrate that at this point in time in particular. Um, and I'm not convinced that a CBDC won't also be captured in the same way, even if it's positioned and marketed as a, as a public utility. So, you know, what could happen is that we have a privacy-preserving CBDC that is available and functions like cash for people that's, you know, negotiable and fungible and all these wonderful things and acts and feels like the physical cash we have today, except it's in a digital form and it's very convenient and we can now transact it across borders and everywhere. And that's a wonderful future, but that ain't going to happen, right? Like, 
Uh, does anybody show hands? Who thinks that's the future we're heading towards? Okay, I see zero hands. So we're all in agreement that that's not going to happen. So what's more likely to happen is that you're going to see some sort of like corporate version of this, right? And that's my biggest fear with stable coins, in particular centralized stable coins right now. And it's the underlying threat that people don't talk about. And, you know, God bless, you know, Center and Circle and, and, you know, Tether and all these people who are issuing these very centralized systems that are effectively, you know, competing to be the CBDC for the U.S. in corporate form. But I don't think that's really a positive future for how you would generate a public utility for everyone. And I don't think it's in the best interest of everybody to have one single corporate centralized entity that is serving that role that's not accountable effectively to the public. So I think it's something when you think about these stable coins, arrangements, and things like that, like that's where we're heading, right? And is that the future we want? Can we do like a better job of how we're thinking about those arrangements and how we can mitigate against sort of that particular risk? Yeah, and I agree with that. I think we also need to be thinking about incentive structures. My kind of like macro view on this is that how do you help preserve monetary sovereignty? You have all of these countries across different GDP, different like even socioeconomic statuses in terms of their populations. How are you helping them preserve their public utility where in some countries people might be kind of going towards other cryptocurrencies or other forms of payment? because it's easier, it preserves value, et cetera. And so a system that allows every country to preserve their monetary sovereignty, but still interoperate with the future of digital assets is actually a very important thing to our financial system, because that public utility is sort of entrenched with all of these larger institutions that aren't going to go away overnight. Then the second thing around, you know, well, okay, so that might be the incentive at, you know, a government or a country level. If you think about, okay, how does this trickle down to the user and like what are some of the design choices that we might even think about making for the user? People think, oh, digital cash. Well, if it's digital, then how can you preserve anonymity? How can you still protect the user? And there are, you know, companies that are looking at how do we design digital cash where you can split where the consumer PII, any sort of information of this consumer is held from the actual transaction analytics or the money analytics. So for example, money analytics might be like the value of what is being transferred, holding periods, et cetera. That is going to be separate from my name, my social security number, and all of those things. So you can still start to preserve sort of this like public utility kind of like ethos. Yeah, and I think it's really critical that we start putting those design decisions into the conversations that we're having now, because otherwise we're at risk of sleepwalking into what could be a very dystopian future, but which, as Patrick alluded to, is painted incredibly rosy, both on the sort of the digital finance side overall. You have the banks pushing that message, the governments, you have even the NGOs, you have things like the Better Than Cash Alliance which is going around to, to all of these NGOs. It's a, it's a collaboration, and it's interesting to look at who is actually the parties that are funding these types of initiatives that are going around like, essentially demonizing cash and saying how terrible it is and we have to take it away and everybody's lives will be a lot better. And then we have also the, the movement today around Web3, around crypto. There's a lot of people with really good intentions, and we want to rebuild the internet, and we want to rebuild money. And sometimes we forget that that was exactly the same narrative that we had with Web 2 as well. 
the beginning, it was all about democratization and these new platforms which will empower people and users. Are we at risk of, of doing that same thing and recreating the same system? At the end of the day, is it the same big banks and the same big tech, along with the telecoms and now the government as well, that are building these platforms which were supposed to give more power to the long tail, but it actually ended up eliminating the long tail because now the entire platform is controlled by these entities. And sometimes when you bring up those topics, you're being very dystopian or you're being too negative and you can be shut out of the conversation. But those are exactly the, the types of things that we would be naive to ignore. And surveillance and censorship are, are the big topics that, that we need to be actually bringing to light right now in, in a way that's real and accessible and not just simply being the negative person in the corner, but looking at how we can work together to address that. It's so funny you brought up Better Than Cash Alliance, too. Like, so if you're not aware, that's funded by like MasterCard and Visa, right? So it's, of course they're better than cash because it's MasterCard and Visa. Like, sure. What's really funny is like, if you go back and you look at the old ads for like Visa and MasterCard, they, the way they used to advertise themselves was it's just like cash, right? Back when people didn't know like, that credit cards were a type of money that you could use, like, which they are now. Like they used to advertise and they have big billboards. It's just like Visa. It's just like cash. Now, of course, it's better than cash, right? Of course. But, uh, and it's also funny because Visa was very utopian when it was founded. And it was meant to be like a big democratizing platform. You could trade any asset and it was just going to change the world. And then it's just like, or, you know, we'll just take, you know, 3%. So I think what's really interesting, right, is, well, I couldn't agree more, Diana, with, with if we don't learn from the mistakes that have happened in legacy systems and, and continue to happen and are now so deeply embedded that questioning them is almost like, you know, it, it's, it, it's anti-orthodoxy right, to kind of question some of these assumptions that have been made. And again, it's important to know that our policy and regulatory environment has been a contributing factor to this. So when you think about the fact that we talk about the long tail, it's got country-level disengagement, community-level disengagement, and individual-level disengagement. So countries are excluded from our financial system because the banking system has decided that they are too high risk as a, as a jurisdiction, right, to actually engage with in a meaningful way. So if you know about how money moves across borders, it hops from a place to a place to a place, and the number of places it has to hop to is dependent on, in many cases, how profitable and how desirable the end goal, end point is, okay? So correspondent banking, we've seen a recession, a pullback, a closure of correspondent banks, which are the banks that kind of do these hops within certain places, meaning the, the problem with this is not even about access, it's about the expense. Every time you hop, there is a fee. So the more hops you have, this is being very simplistic, the more expensive it is to get money from the United States to whatever place it is. We see this in remittance corridors like crazy, huge problem. Okay? It's why there are alternatives to getting small dollar value payments across borders. Secondly, you've got community level disengagement. So this is, we could talk for a whole, I mean, at some point I will, I keep saying this, at some point somebody will take me up on the panel I want to do on redlining, but there's a, a whole you know, history in the United States and other countries as well about systematic discrimination within not only banking, but also within tech. And this is, in some parts, it's not the fault of tech companies. There's digital deserts. They've tried to address this in some cases by bringing in, you know, fiber or whatever it is to varying degrees of success. But some communities have been deliberately, because of bias, excluded from certain kinds of financial services, credit, insurance, mortgages. This is well, well documented. And in some cases, it's individuals. God forbid in the year, you know, 2022, but particularly even more in like 2012, you had the name Muhammad Muhammad, okay? Let me tell you, that is not a situation you wanted to be in to get access to any services, not just getting on a plane, but being able to get a loan, being able to get a checking account, okay? That's individual level discrimination. It has nothing to do with you personally. 
It's categorizing you based on some attribute that is independent of your actual creditworthiness or legitimacy or non-terrorist status. So all of these forms of exclusion are baked into our system in response to KYC AML, in response to profitability of the current system that is evolved in a certain way. Now, what I have found very, very interesting slash troubling, depending on the day and my mood, is how we've responded as a society to what the Ukraine invasion, the invasion of Ukraine. Okay? So we were able to CCI to get in and talk about how there's all this concern that crypto is being used for sanctions evasion by Russian oligarchs. That is just not happening. It's well documented. It's not happening. I mean, we'll move on from that. What was happening was in real time, the crowdfunding of a catalytic wartime defense by Ukrainian government using crypto. That is an incontrovertible fact that happened. And the willingness, I think, of people to just dismiss this as an edge case, I find mind-blowing. Like, this is the thing. This is what we didn't have any other way to get done, and it got done. And yes, of course, the billion dollars that flooded in later was a result of the international governments getting together and all of that. And there's no question that crypto alone did not, is not saving Ukraine. But the quickness, the rapidity of the ability to respond and to get this, these assets and this value in the hands of Ukrainian ministers and officials, there's no question that that was a critical component of the response. So the question, after my little rant there, is, you know, how do we kind of recenter this conversation and say edge cases, activists, human rights, uh, countries and communities that have been excluded from legacy systems, funding of a wartime defense and humanitarian assistance, how do we shift the conversation to say openness is going to mean focusing on places where systems have been closed? And the examples are always going to feel a little bit activist or radical or whatever, because they often are. So how do we you know, talk about that and make that not like scary and edge and whatever, not worth the investment, but talk about that as something that is a critical way that we have to recenter the build of these systems. Say the other stuff is easy. Getting you know, someone who lives in Silicon Valley access to mortgage, that's not, that's not the hard part. It's getting somebody who's going into North Korea you know, money to fund their exit and extrication, right? That's hard. So I just want to get thoughts on this. Maybe, Diane, I'll start with you because I know you focus a lot on these communities. Yeah, well, I think we absolutely have to start working with the people who are already working on these topics, on digital rights. Actually, I think it just ended now, but almost at the same time as this conference, you have RightsCon, where digital activists are looking at the, the issues that are being faced by the big plat tech platforms today. Um, and money is, is another important and critical area to doing that. So we, we need to be having that kind of dialogue and we need to be self-aware that if we're building new forms of money and we're all in North America or, or Europe, that we don't necessarily have the, the questions in mind that, that we need to or the experience of what can go wrong. Because as I mentioned, these systems always work until they don't. <laughs> And it's the don't that we need to be paying attention to and to be incorporating into the design now. Because if we do have a system where money is all digital and it's on a platform, then you can actually just turn the pipes off. Is there any way, will there be a way to opt out of that system? Or what if you are outside of that system? I'm Canadian and I think, embarrassingly, we became a poster child for how that can go wrong recently. Yeah, it's really, it's, I think we have to be building as if the movement of money by a person across a border is it's a lives at stake issue because this is the reality of the world, I think, I mean, not to be too dystopian about it, but given all the forces I think that are happening that are external to any sort of technology, climate refugees, whatever it is, right? Uh, invasions by countries of other countries and sovereignty, you know, 
I think we have to understand that the ability to kind of be portable here and to do that safely is really, really important in these systems. And I think you're talking a little bit about that, but also saying the way to do that is to be this is not new, you know, there, is, there are decades and decades of civic tech, of activism, of rights approaches to these things. So yeah, Patrick, over to you. Yeah, I was just gonna say, but like, I don't mean to be a cynic here, but what you run into is oh, decades and decades of public policy, mostly in the US, that has determined that money is not a neutral technology, that it is in fact a policy tool and that the U.S. dollar is a method of exerting influence and power uh, over those countries and those peoples and people who are marginalized. And so long as that mindset is out there, then you're sort of always going to be on the periphery of the system, right? And so that's the mindset that needs to be challenged, that should this thing that is a public utility and should be a public utility should it also be a tool of political power and foreign policy, or should it really be a neutral tool? That's a hard conversation to have, because when you talk to people who do believe that it is a tool for exerting power and influence and, and values that we might all agree with in, in some cases, they're very passionate about that position, and it's very deeply ingrained, and it's not often spoken out loud. It's often in the background. So I think that's a challenge. And I think that if you're going to have those tough conversations, then you need to be really credible when you have them. And I think the biggest challenge, I'm sure you ran into this over and over, both, both of you, right, is the, this idea that, you know, I'm from Bitcoin and I'm here to save you, right, or, or from anything. And it's, you know, that has, we've heard a million stories of, like, these, these things that are coming, they're just around the corner, or, or I shouldn't just say Bitcoin, it's just mostly Ethereum, really. Um, um, I love them both. They're great. Uh, I will be trolled later, I'm sure, for this. Um, the, uh, that's, you know, we all have a million stories, like, you know, whale out to save the whales and, like, other things. And it's like, those aren't credible, and they actually harm the overall credibility of anybody who's trying to advance real solutions to, to real problems, even if they're small solutions, right? So making sure that you're not just, you know, hyping some crazy thing that has no real practical purpose or ability to have a purpose. And then the other thing, and you touched on it, Dan, I think it's so crucial, is like not insisting that you know the answer for somebody else's problem, right? And that, to me, is often the difference between inclusion or openness and predatory inclusion, right? So inclusion would be, here's a set of tools for you to solve your problem your way, which I think is great, and it's admirable, and we see things like what happened in Ukraine, which came from Ukraine. It did not come from Westerners telling people in Ukraine how to do it, right? Uh, versus, well, like stable coins, which is like, we've got the solution for you, but you know, we'll take all the interest, and things like that, where you know, you've created a solution that allows people to give you money so that you can make money off it, or something like that, right? Then, uh, so, so I think we gotta keep those like, distinctions in mind. Yeah, and I just had a couple comments to your point and then also to yours on like the shift of power. First is this idea of like leapfrogging, right? These edge cases or sometimes where people can adopt a new system more easily because their current system is broken. They're more incentivized to make that leap. But I think as we think about global finance, payments, et cetera, it's important to help the people who are also have systems that kind of work 
make sure that they're leapfrogging with everyone else. Because I have a theory that this idea of, you know, global power and maybe what people today say is like reserve currency status, you know, there's certain types of currency denominations that have more power, hold more power. I think that'll be the case. But I think over time, we're shifting to more regionalized systems. So we are having countries come up with their own systems of what is going to be their version of digital cash or their version of, you know, their own public utility. And if we're really seeing that transition of power, then we should be talking about some sort of global reserve platform or a platform that allows interoperability between each of these different regional kind of entities and the systems that they're, you know, building for their countries. So that's just a couple of comments on both those points. So this brings me to kind of another thing I've been noodling about a bit lately, which is scalability, right? So, so one of the big criticisms of all these ecosystems, I love all, those, all these tokens equally, you know, is, um, is their subscale. And I think that it depends. I, I always I pause there because I'm like, well, how do you define scale? I don't really know. I don't know how to define scale. And so if you define scale as the ability for local communities or individuals or families or whatever unit you want to kind of call it to hyper-locally define solutions, that's one thing. Because you're never going to have a solution that works for Ukraine. That means they're probably not going to work for whoever else, God forbid, gets invaded, right? Like, inevitably, it gets invaded. Probably not going to work. Who knows? I don't know. We're not going to know until we're there. And those people are going to decide, right? So what does it mean to be at scale? Is it the use of the technology? Is that the sole determinant? And what's done with it doesn't have to be at any sort of scale as we traditionally define it? Or is it that we have not, you know, we've not arrived in some fashion? Is it, is it reasonable to say until one application, you know, if we're losing that framework, suddenly takes wildfire and kind of goes everywhere. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on this. We'll start with you because you mentioned scalability. Yeah, I think just super short and quick, scalability is, can be about the technology you choose and it can be purely about speed, throughput, latency, et cetera. I think scalability is also something of how can we get multiple different systems that are built differently and inherently will be be built differently because different design choices, different policy considerations, et cetera, how do we get different systems to actually talk to one another quickly and fast so that they don't have to be on the same system to work at high efficiency? So those are the two things that like really come to mind for me. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity to improve the efficiency and interoperability of global money systems. I think that that's also a risk. So I see a, a lot of potential opportunity and power for really localized systems that are coming from the people that actually use them um, to design systems that work for them. And for that not to be some technologist sitting in Silicon Valley telling the rest of the world what they need. At the same time, when you have the ability of these global systems to interact, then you potentially move away from the issues that you face in certain geographies because of particular regimes. When I used to work for a company called Uphold Bitreserve, we had a lot of people um, of our users in Venezuela, in Argentina, who were looking for a stable way to hold their savings outside of their local currencies. Having those kinds of opportunities and, and access is important. But then, of course, yeah, there is the, the potential for this. It, there are global platforms that can be turned on and off if there's a particular government in the world that has the power to influence everybody else's financial systems laws and to decide who gets to be in or out of that system. And that's where things get get difficult as well. I'm just going to hop in just to give like maybe an analogy of 
let's say like they're two countries and one operates in traditional like cash reserves, one operates maybe in a stable coin. This country has decided to adopt a stable coin. If they come to the other country and say, hey, the only way we're going to do trade with you is if you use our system, then the other country is inherently put in a position where they're going to have to adopt said sort of system to receive and interact in that trade. However, going back to the idea of like interoperability to scale, if there is a layer or a platform that says, yes, someone who's operating in a traditional cash reserve system can now talk to and transact with someone who's in traditional stablecoin system at the same efficiency as if they were on the same system, that's something that could be really powerful because then it's not forcing either country to move off of the system that is prioritized or optimized for themselves and their needs. Yeah, and excellent points. I think that um, when we think about, the, one of the ways I think about this is like in technology generally, we go through these waves of centralization and then decentralization and fragmentation. I would say that, you know, you know we're seeing it in social media right now. There's been like so much concentration and now it appears we're entering a phase where hopefully there's a little bit of fragmentation um, within those systems and you start seeing some fragmentation across the networks. There's not just Twitter anymore that there are other town halls online that people can join, uh, hopefully not into their own filter bubbles, but, you know, uh, maybe. Um, and I think we're seeing, and we're about to see the same thing with uh, uh, money and, and networks around money and finance, too. That what I'm guessing is that you're going to see much more fragmentation of these different types of networks. So instead of a monolithic sort of visa MasterCard duopoly that the whole world's money system runs on, you're going to see a proliferation of monies, types of monies, but also networks, whether they're hyperlocal or global. Uh, and, and you're just going to see this broad proliferation of network types um, going forward. And I think interoperability is going to be one of those policy questions that comes down to, you know, how interoperable do we want it? these different networks, these different fragmented networks, how does that support our values? Uh, if, we, if we're talking about our network interrupting, interoperating with other networks, how much does some friction there help benefit um, stability, financial stability within these different networks so that you're not having people just mass migrate out of like one stablecoin back network into another and creating a run on one system and crashing the economy of one country? So a little bit of friction might be desirable in those spaces, but those are going to be policy questions that emerge. Um, God, that's terrifying, though. The idea of a stablecoin backed, you, that is dystopic right there. That is really, really dark. <laughs> but, but then if we're looking at those systems, we need an infrastructure for them all to be built on top of. And the question then becomes, who owns that infrastructure? if it's no longer SWIFT or these legacy systems that are controlled by certain states, then, then we need an open infrastructure that everyone can build on. And I suppose that's why we're all here at a crypto conference. It doesn't mean that any of those are the particular winners yet, but that's the idea behind it. And it will be interesting to see if any of those platforms can fulfill that promise or how else do we build it out in a way that remains as open and neutral as it would be required in order to actually work for everyone. You can just say Bitcoin. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wanted to say here. that. <laughs> 
Okay, so I'm going to shift us completely. Uh, our, our title does have planet in there, and we haven't really touched on sustainability and those kinds of issues. A, a big buzzword right now, again, like there's pros and cons, and there's people who are like, you know, blockchain technology is the way to a more sustainable, enhanced ESG dynamic and system, and others who are like, everything is terrible, it's all going to go to hell. I'm curious kind of how you see uh, openness being related to sustainability. And you can frame it through the ESG if, you know, concept if you want to or not. Um, but I'd love to just get thoughts on that so we can log your comments for perhaps future discussion. But Diane, I'll start with you. So I, th I think ESG is important when we're looking at like the existing financial system and what's fueling it and what is actually powering. <laughs> well, continue, please. Somebody's really trying does. to mute this conversation. Not <laughs> uh, no, but it is. This, if you look at ESG right now, there's there is a lot of greenwashing. Some of that's coming out in the open now, and it's kind of like a circular system. That's um, just people that are saying that this is what it, that what we're working towards, but it's just a lot of tick boxes. So I think when we're looking at how do we actually want to create a system for the planet? We do have to look at the existing structures that are allowing us to pretend that we are helping the planet um, when that's actually not really happening. I'll, I'll, I can be brief. I think that ESG and like blockchain technology are totally orthogonal. Like I don't think that there's really one that has to do with the other. Sure, you could build marketplaces and things like that, but that would be the only interrelation. If you have ESG concern, if you're worried about carbon or something like that, then there are plenty of tech-neutral options that we could take in order to reduce carbon and the release of carbon into the atmosphere. They're just politically unsavory, and so we choose to demonize certain technologies right now at this moment, and that's unfortunate, and it does a disservice to everybody who actually cares about ESG. Yeah, I was going to say there's a set of crypto-adjacent technologies that aren't DLT necessarily, but looking at proof of authority models with certain different hashing algorithms versus maybe consensus. Um, there's also the use of like elliptical curve algorithms and verification for faster signing. And so there are all these things that you can actually build into the technology itself um, that I think focuses on this idea of sustainability and ESG in terms of how you're building your system. Then of course, there's this idea of like, open source and does open sourcing kind of help think through like how we might reduce certain levels of compute power and resources as we build out these different systems. Well, I would just close us by pointing out that in my view, you know, ESG, we tend to talk a lot about the E and say that if we're not focusing on the E on sustainability in, in an environmental sense, you know, greenwashing and everything you know, in, that, in that context, uh, we're not meeting ESG requirements. But I think we've spent a lot of time today in our discussion talking about the S, which is the humans, which is the people and communities that we need to be factoring into some of these conversations, um, there are occasionally trade-offs among E, S, and G, and it's something to be aware of. And always, I think we need to be very honest about what that looks like and try to find the balance that's going to work for everyone. And I include, you know, in that policymakers and others. Uh, but we also implied a lot about the G, which is the governance. And I, you know, we, with our remaining minute, we don't have time to go into this, but there are other sessions happening here at Consensus. I'd encourage you, if that interests you, to attend, including one I'm moderating tomorrow, that are focusing specifically on what does this new technological innovation allow in terms of governance, which I think relate back both to the S, and here I would challenge you a little, Patrick, and the E, because you can create governance models that are prioritizing within that ecosystem, you know, accountability or transparency in emissions, for example, right? You could talk about inclusion as a model that's baked into governance and democratizing the accountability within systems and the governance models of very much of systems. 
which again, there's, there's diversity in design choices about how this functions in, in the entire, across all of crypto. So I'll close us out by thanking our incredible panel, Natalia Takor, Patrick Merck, and Diana Biggs for joining us today. To all of you, I hope this was thought provoking. It certainly was for me. I hope you learned something. Have a great conference. You've been listening to Money Reimagine Consensus 2022 panel discussion from Austin, Texas. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Natalia Thacker, Diana Biggs, and Patrick Merck. This episode has been edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Our theme song is Shepherd. If you have any questions, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coinist.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>